This is a Federal News Network podcast. The technology industry is rooting for a bill the Senate passed earlier this year. The U.S. Innovation and Competition Act authorizes $110 billion over five years to fund research in artificial intelligence, semiconductors, quantum computing, and related technologies. For why at least one sector likes this bill, we turn to the president and CEO of the Information Technology Industry Council, ITIC, Jason Oxman. Jason, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be with you. And this bill, of course, sets up regional technology centers, lots of money in grants. What is industry's general take on what it will do? Well, this is an enormously important bill. We're strongly supportive of this legislation. Glad it moved through the Senate. Hope it moves through the House quickly into the president's desk. It's really critical for expanding America's technology leadership. It has, as you mentioned, a lot of investment and focus on technology leadership, on economic competitiveness, U.S. innovation, including funding for development of technology centers, research, high-tech jobs. There's really a lot in it that's going to be important for the U.S. economy and important for our technology leadership around the world. Yeah, and of course, this is aimed at at least all the accounts I've read in the summary of it at China. And I guess maybe industry's view, it kind of gives industry the backup that maybe Chinese industrial counterparts have from their government? Yeah, that's a a really important point. And uh, nowhere is this more evident than in the semiconductor provisions in this bill. There's funding in here, $52 billion for something called the CHIPS Act for America. The CHIPS Act is focused on investing in manufacturing capability here in the U.S., for semiconductors. We've all heard about the shortage of semiconductors across all industries around the world. And as the semiconductor industry looks to increase manufacturing capability, we think it's enormously important that we do that here in the United States. China provides enormous subsidies for companies to invest in semiconductor manufacturing there. We think it's more important that it happen here. It's important for manufacturing. It's important for job creation. It's important for national security. And this legislation has the funding in it. We need it to become law in order for that to become realized. But we think that's enormously important to have happen. Yes, because short term, the world is relying on Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing. And just as China came in and kind of smashed Hong Kong, it seems like Taiwan is probably next in their sights. So there's a short term worry because of that, correct? Well, the long-term interest of the U.S. is to have companies like Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, TSMC, build manufacturing capability in the U.S. It's a great company. Intel is a great company. There are other great manufacturers of semiconductors that do so in the U.S., like Texas Instruments. We love AMD. All these companies are terrific, and we want them to continue to grow their supply, but we want them to do it in the U.S. We don't want them to build their next generation of plants elsewhere. We don't want it built in China. We want it built in the U.S. So the CHIPS Act has that funding in it to help semiconductors be built here in the U.S., and we think that's what we should be doing. And I guess maybe the larger question then is what are the policies that gave rise to the exodus of chip manufacturing from the United States in the first place? I mean, we still refer constantly to Silicon Valley, which used to be Silicon Valley. Now it's Software Valley and Lord knows what else. But, you know, the fabs have closed up and moved elsewhere. Maybe there's something in our policies that could foster industry to stay here in the first place. Well, it's an enormously important question, and it is the driving force behind this legislation. The U.S. Innovation and Competition Act is designed to replace those national policies that we used to have to encourage manufacturing in the U.S. with a new generation of policies that invest in 
national security and global economic competitiveness. So you're absolutely right. Uh, just a, a couple of decades ago in the 90s, well over 25% of the world's semiconductors were manufactured here in the U.S. Today, that number is closer to 11%. So we really have lost an, almost an entire generation of manufacturing capability. So the policy change that needs to happen is reverting back to policies that support manufacturing here in the U.S., support job creation, support research and development, and that's exactly what this legislation does. And we're hoping to reverse the trend that we've seen in the last couple decades of the manufacturing of semiconductors moving outside of the U.S. Let's bring it back to the U.S. We're speaking with Jason Oxman, president and CEO of the Information Technology Industry Council, because you wonder if someone proposed a million-square-foot fab somewhere in California or in Washington State or even Texas, for that matter, how long such a thing would be tied up with environmental reviews and regulatory red tape that is both federal, state, and local. And this partnership among all levels of government, with the federal government leading the way, is enormously important to addressing those kind of concerns. What we've seen in recent years is really industrial policy from other areas of the world, China leading the way, such that it becomes much more expensive to build a semiconductor manufacturing facility in the U.S., than outside of the U.S. for all of those reasons you mentioned, ranging from the time it takes to get the permitting to actual funding from government to help secure the investing to tax credits that help make it more economically viable to build those facilities. So other countries are doing this around the world, hence the reason that semiconductor manufacturing has moved outside of the U.S. If we can get the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act and the CHIPS Act funding moved forward, signed into law by the president, we have a real opportunity to re-engage with the R&D, the tech talent, and the manufacturing capability here in the U.S. It's going to have enormous economic benefits. It's going to have enormous national security benefits. We really need to get it done. And when you look at chip manufacturing, in some ways, it's the final step in a long chain of suppliers, you know, air products, companies like that, construction, all sorts of high-tech semiconductor manufacturing equipment. And then, of course, a semiconductor chip is the expression of millions and millions of lines of code etched into hardware. So there's all this software development. It seems like these could really be great economic engines. No question. The semiconductor industry really is the backbone. It's the building block for everything. There is not a device on the market today that doesn't have semiconductors inside it, ranging from the phones that we're talking on right now across the world to artificial intelligence, to supercomputers, to cars and vacuum cleaners and everything in between. So uh, no question, these are the backbones. They are the essential building block for every device that's manufactured. So if we have an opportunity to increase the manufacturing capability, we really have the opportunity to build every industry that's built on top of semiconductors. So it has enormous spillover benefits for economic competitiveness. And the bill deals with more than simply semiconductors. There's quantum computing, there's artificial intelligence, a whole string of things that would seem to create an ecosystem that seems to be ebbing at the moment in the country. It's all of those things. It's funding for all of those areas that you just mentioned. It's also got a really important focus in this legislation on training and trade and economic and manufacturing jobs, high-skilled jobs in the U.S. We need more high-skilled jobs and we need more high-skilled workers. And retraining, reskilling is enormously important, but also STEM education to get people into these high-skilled jobs is important. So there's a lot of programs in the uh, U.S. Innovation and Competition Act that would advance that as well. It really is an omnibus bill that looks at the global economic competitiveness of the United States 
and takes concrete steps in a number of different areas to build out capabilities that will help grow the U.S. economy and help the U.S. compete internationally. And do you ever think that perhaps this could also help some of the economically underprivileged, if you will, areas of the country to drive through large swaths of Appalachia, through the Rust Belt, Youngstown, Ohio, and parts of Indiana and states like that, where you see vast former factories or gigantic sites that are nothing but you know rubble at this point? It seems like there's a great opportunity for training people and building facilities where you already have open land that used to be a factory of long ago. And the technology industry really has taken the lead in uh, doing that. Companies like Intuit is one I think of that has uh, invested in technology jobs in West Virginia in the middle of Appalachia and is creating hundreds of new jobs and, and retraining and reskilling people. And that's why the workforce components of the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act are so important because we do have an opportunity to transform areas of the country that have maybe seen their heyday with different types of manufacturing transform into high-tech manufacturing, but it really is about the skilling of workers and also the STEM training and making sure that we make our STEM training start early enough and make it attractive to people in areas that may not have had STEM training, starting in middle school, starting in elementary school, working through high school into associate degrees, making sure we don't view the four-year college degree as the only potential path to getting a good, high-paying job. These are all provisions that are in the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, and one of the reasons that the tech industry, which needs these workers and has these jobs available is so supportive of the legislation. And what is ITI doing to make sure this advances in the House at this point? Well, we uh, worked hard to get it through the Senate, and we we're very pleased to see it pass through the Senate with overwhelming bipartisan support. Now we need to move to the House. ITI and the tech industry that we represent, all 80 of our member companies that are global technology and innovation powerhouses, are telling the story of how the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act will advance the U.S. economy, will help create great jobs and help move forward our economic competitiveness. We're telling that story in the House. We're there every day and meeting with folks and helping them understand the importance of this legislation. And we're doing everything we can to move it forward. Jason Oxman is president and CEO of the Information Technology Industry Council. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands 
Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. 
That's right. And and I mentioned that I, I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author, She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WAPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.